Good morning, church. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, one of the songs of ascent, the songs that pilgrims sang on their way to Jerusalem. Our message is entitled, The Lord Builds the House. This is God's word. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. O Lord, we ask that you would be here now. Bless the preaching of your word. Prepare our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, every year, uh, my friend Brian McGargy invites a group of guys on a father-son camp out to Elk Neck, Maryland. And as a part of that trip, we hike out to Turkey Point Lighthouse. And when the boys were young, we were always amazed because just off the trail, you're hiking out onto this, this point, but just off the trail, there is a cliff. There's like a little bit of a rise and then a cliff that goes straight down to the water, maybe 50 or 100 feet. And there was never a guardrail or a sign or a warning or, or anything. And then one year, we got there, and at the beginning of the trail, they put up this long split rail fence that would keep people away from looking down the cliff. And we would often talk about why they put the fence up after so many years. And we kind of developed our own little backstory, kind of a, a bit of a cautionary tale for young boys And we called the fence the Bobby Johnston Memorial Fence. And this past year, I surprised the boys by buying a little plaque and attaching it to the fence so that they would see it when they walked by. And the plaque tells the whole story. I think I have a picture of it here. It says, yeah, it says, Bobby wouldn't listen. He thought adults were nerds. Stay away from the edge was the last thing that he heard. That's a picture of our group there, yep. So in that story, Bobby is overly confident. He doesn't listen to the voices of caution, and the rest, as they say, went down in history. Just let that sit for a minute. Well, when we look at Psalm 127, it's addressing a similar problem that we have. See, our problem is that we are prone to be confident in ourselves. We are confident in our opinions. We are confident in our perspectives. We're confident in our decisions. Our confidence tends to be argumentative when we interact with others' thoughts, 
judgmental when we hear people's perspectives or dismissive when we receive critique. We have our own method for doing things. Don't tell me what I'm doing it wrong. I know how to do this. A scripture calls this vain. We are vain. I am vain. You are vain. You are so vain, you probably think this sermon's about you, don't you? (laughs) The danger is that our vanity, our pride, can be subtle. It tends to make us close our ears to hearing and seeing clearly. It can cause us to silence the voice of our conscience and the voice of our closest relationships or the voice of the church or the very word of God, all of which are given by God to help us. And Psalm 127 is a call to wisdom. It's a bit of a corrective adjustment, calling us away from our own vain thinking to submit ourselves to the Lord and his love and his sovereignty because it's the Lord who makes our labor fruitful as we faithfully build our lives and our families and our church. It's the Lord who makes our labor effective as we faithfully build our lives and our families and our churches. And so we're going to see this in two sections of the psalm. The first is the Lord builds the house, verses 1 and 2, and then the Lord builds the family, verses 3 and 5. So the Lord builds the house. Verse 1 begins with this incredibly poetic and memorable reminder of our total dependence on God. Unless the Lord builds the house, our efforts are in vain, worthless, meaningless, Commentator Christopher Ashe says, the true builder and the true guard is the Lord himself. This is his project before it's ours. We need to remember that, church. We need to remember our lives are his project before they are ours. The Lord is the focus here. He's the one building. He's the one watching. He's the one that makes our efforts fruitful and worthwhile. And this is a very reassuring reality. You see, we tend to build our self-worth on our efforts and our successes, our self-image on how successful we are in our career, in school, in relationships, parenting, in our marriages, in our possessions, in our vacations. We look for validation in how we compare with other people. But God tips that idol of success over just like the idol of Dakin onto the ground. Success is nothing unless the Lord is at work blessing our efforts. Now this doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. You can see in verse one, there is an actual builder doing the building. There's an actual watchman staying awake, doing real work, that's us. Our efforts are real, our work, our job, our efforts in our marriages or our parenting or building relationships, we really work at these things. But if we forget the Lord, our efforts are in vain. This is the reality of life. We are morally responsible to be faithful and we're obligated to fully trust and submit ourselves to God's sovereign and good will. The builder is faithful to build. The watchman is faithful to watch, but they also trust that it's the Lord who is doing the building. It's not a 50-50 effort on the part of each side. It's a call to total faithfulness and total trust in God. And it leads to God's blessing. Verse 2 is about that tension between our being self-reliant and trusting the Lord. And it talks about getting up early and going to bed late. It's not talking about godly and diligent and hard work. This is 
rising early and going to bed late in self-sufficiency. It's overconfidence in our own gifts and abilities and strengths to get results rather than working faithfully and humbly and submitting our results to the Lord. And the fruit of this self-focused self-reliance is anxiety. Verse 2 describes it as eating the bread of anxious toil. We don't feel peaceful. Instead, we fret. We worry. We're robbed of the peace God provides. Verse 2 tells us that God loves us. He calls us his beloved. And the peace of God is manifested in sleep. Now, the psalmist is not mincing words here. He is saying, if you put your trust in the Lord, you will sleep peacefully. Michael Wilcock makes this very practical when he says, the house is a house. It's your house. It's my house. We're concerned for the homes of the city and about the jobs and about going to work and coming home, about food and sleep. Verses 1 and 2 are the psalmist's version of Christ's words about anxiety over the practical necessities of life. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So what are you worried about? What are the areas in your life where you have been eating the bread of anxious toil? Maybe there's a situation at work. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grades or a house project. John Stott says, what's condemned is worry on the one hand and feverish self-confident activity on the other. Both are symptoms of unbelief. What do you do when you are anxious? Are you able to identify it as unbelief? Don't excuse it. It's vanity. Repent and ask God to forgive you of your constant fretting, of your fears of what might happen, of the godless future scenarios that you play out in your mind that keep you awake at night. Remind yourself of the Lord's steadfast love and constant presence. That's what it means in 1 Peter 5-7 when it says that we cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. It's not just a slogan. It's taking action when we feel overwhelmed, fearful, or on the verge of breaking down. It's pouring out our hearts to the Lord and acknowledging that he is God. He is good and does good, as Psalm 119-68 says. It's stopping in those moments and saying, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Here's why I feel like it's hard, but I do trust you. Help me trust you. Psalm 62, 8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That's what it means to take refuge in the Lord. It means to talk to God, to express our fears, to tell him that we will trust him because of who he is and so this, correct, this correction ends by saying the Lord's blessing is a good night's sleep. Now, I know there are many reasons for sleeplessness. I'm just telling you what Psalm 127 verse 2 says about sleeplessness, okay? Peace and the ability to sleep is a gift from God. It's often connected to remembering how capable God is and expressing our trust and confidence in him because it's the Lord who makes our labor fruitful as we faithfully build our lives and our families and our church. And that brings us to our second point. The Lord builds the family. Now the next section of Psalm 127 is about children. And now that doesn't mean that everybody that is not a parent can just not offer a little bit of that peaceful sleep that the Lord gives to his beloveds. The scripture here is exuberant 
about the blessing of children. And as a church, we delight in the blessing of children. But as we do that, I just want to acknowledge that this is a topic that can be difficult for some. I know that there are singles who would like to be married and have children or who feel that that opportunity is already past. I know there are married couples facing infertility. And month after month, it's a battle for joy and faith as you ask God why he would give you this good desire and not fulfill it. And I recognize there are married couples who forever, for whatever reason, do not have children. In each of these scenarios, I want you to know that the Lord is with you. The Lord cares for you. He bears with your sorrows and disappointments And he has a good plan and purpose for your life. In fact, there was a wonderful testimony that one of our members uh, posted on the Togetherness blog. It's our women's ministry blog. I have two testimonies from the women's ministry blog in the sermon today. I just spent a lot of time on the women's blog. (laughs) But in an article called All the Time in Every Season, God is Faithful by Holly Coran. Holly just says, here I am in my 50s, still single with no children. I could choose to be disappointed that my life did not unfold according to my plans. But I believe that it is exactly how God wants it to be at this exact time. God's faithful. And I have faith that God knows best because he created me. He knows the plans he has for me. Holly, thank you for your example of trusting God's faithfulness. And for all of us as a church, remember... God's blessing of children in our families is a blessing of children in our church. And our church is a family. And there are sons and daughters and nephews and nieces who need to be cared for here in this church. So we all have opportunity to care and to serve. And may we all trust the Lord and wait on him to take strength in his faithfulness. Now, as we look at verse 3, it begins with this declaration, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. The Lord builds the family. And recognize that this is not some abrupt change of topic. It's rather a continuity of thought. Houses are built. The city is made secure. Why? So that it becomes a home so that a family can live there. We see this illustrated in Nehemiah 7, where the city is rebuilt. Nehemiah set up a whole system of watchmen to keep the place safe. But verse 4 says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. Well, here's Psalm 127. The house is built, the city is guarded, and now it's to be populated. What's expounded here is the great value and the importance of children. That children are granted by the Lord as a profound blessing. The imagery is of heritage, of reward, inheritance, passing wealth down from generation to generation. In verse 4, children are compared to arrows in the hands of a warrior and they become a symbol of strength and defense. The call here is to receive children into our homes with faith and joy and to receive children into the church with gratitude and hope because children are the purpose of families for the stability of society and the continuation of the church. James Montgomery Boyce says, why is the house being built if not for the family? Why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for families to live in it? Then, as now, the family was the basic unit and most important element of society. 
The only difference is that the ancient Jew knew it, and we generally do not. Is this true? Have we lost the understanding of the family as the central building block of society and the church? The air we breathe in our culture today is one that is more centered on self-fulfillment than on community and care for others. This is the foundation of the argument to destroy children through abortion. The child in the womb is able to be killed through abortion because it's not considered a person unless the parents want it to be considered a person. The parents' self-fulfillment dominates over the scientific reality that every person's life begins at conception. The same 46 chromosomes you have as an adult are the same you had when you were a single-cell human. The parent's self-fulfillment dominates over the theological reality that God regularly speaks throughout Scripture of knowing us as persons in the womb. We're told statistically that one in four women who have an abortion attended church within a month of their abortion. Brothers and sisters, it's happening in the church. We are susceptible to the culture's exaltation of self-fulfillment. And if you're here this morning and you have abortion in your past, we want you to know that there is forgiveness, there is healing in Jesus Christ. And we are glad that you are here. Please consider talking to someone after the service or reaching out to Honey Muir and attending uh, that Bible study. Church, let's not forget that it's the Lord who builds the house and the, and the Lord who opens the womb and the Lord who gives every child as a heritage. And may Psalm 127 wake us up to the blessing of children. As Boyce said earlier, why is the house being built if not for family? Why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for families to live in it? We need to recognize that marriage was created and intended to welcome children. The first command God ever gave to humanity is in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage is intended to fill the earth with God's image bearers. Young people here today, if whether you are teens or you're in college or newly married, God's word is teaching you about the purpose of marriage, and children are central to it. You are included in this command to be fruitful and to multiply. Scripture says little or nothing about marriage as an institution that is disconnected from children. And Psalm 127 not only says children are a blessing, but it's a blessing to have a quiver full of them. Now, a quiver is a case for holding arrows. And that name has nothing to do with any particular number. The Bible just says it's a blessing when it's full. So consider this image. You as a warrior going into battle with a bow and an arrow, and you have a limited number of shots to defend yourself or to defeat the enemy. So how many arrows do you want in that quiver? Fill it up, Legolas. And for our young married couples, you should be having conversations about children. You should be looking at Scripture and then bringing your thinking about children and family in line with God's Word. If you find yourself hesitant or disinclined or worried about it, 
it'd be good for you to spend time discussing that together as a couple and then consider inviting other believers who are older, more experienced, who are mature in the Lord to help you as you engage God about what building your family will look like. There's a blessing ahead of you And we as a church want to encourage you, we want to prepare you, we want to walk with you, we want to celebrate with you as the Lord builds your family. For those of you who are already parents, you've experienced both the joy of children being a heritage and that children are a responsibility. And it's a big responsibility. And it comes with challenges. Derek Kidner says, and it's not untypical of God's gifts that first They are liabilities, or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. I love this. The greater their promise, the more likely these sons will be a handful before they're a quiverful. And all the parents of sons said, amen. (laughs) I heard one comedian say, I have five boys, so I can never sell my house. We'll just wait till they move out and then burn it down. I'm not, I'm not putting boys down because they are amazing and they're fun. They're just different from girls and uh, designed that way. It does seem like you need to get through a certain amount of the destruction phase before you get to the construction phase uh, with boys. I even asked my son if I could share this because we laugh about it all the time. But I often ask fathers of daughters, you know, how many windows in your house have your daughters broken? And of all the fathers that I've asked, and it's quite a number, the answer is still zero. And in my family, with my two daughters, number zero. With my boys, number six. (laughs) Yeah. Try to use the couch as a backstop for the baseball pitching, broken window number one. Awesome floor hockey game in the garage, hockey stick through the window, broken window number two. Try and scare a squirrel away from the bird feeder by banging on the window, broken window number three. (laughs) Side note, lazy dad tapes cardboard over broken glass, waits six months (laughs) to finally ask Mr. Ferryman to replace the glass. About three weeks later, banged on again, broken window number four. (laughs) Side note number two, lazy dad again tapes the cardboard up, this time for 18 months. (laughs) Wendy is a saint. Kids coming in for playing in the snow. Big kids lock little kid outside to be funny. Let me in, bang, bang, broken window number five. And drumstick flies out of the drummer's hand and through the basement window. Broken window number six. Sometimes they are a handful before they're quiverful. (laughs) Love you guys. Uh, But it's a lot of responsibility. But beyond the repairs, there's responsibility to raise them, to provide for their physical needs, food and clothing and shelter, provide for their emotional needs, to love them and protect them, to provide for their spiritual needs, to teach them about God as he's revealed himself in Scripture in the gospel, and in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.4 says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 6.5 and 7 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The scriptures must be our source for wisdom and we're called to parent our children from biblical convictions. Parents, the primary drive behind your parenting should not be rooted in what the world tells us or what you perceive to be your parents' mistakes, but what the word of God explicitly calls you to. Ted Tripp encourages you in this way, saying, the only safe guide 
is the Bible. It's the revelation of a God who has infinite knowledge and therefore will give you absolute truth. God is giving you a revelation that is robust and complete. It presents an accurate and comprehensive picture of children, parents, family, life, values, training, nurture, discipline, all you need to be equipped for the task of parenting. Parents, you need the Bible to be the foundation and guide for every stage of parenting your children. And you can trust the Bible to be an all-sufficient help in your parenting. Now, that's not to say there aren't other helpful resources as you seek to parent well, but Scripture must be our first source, and all other sources must be evaluated by the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. God's Word has authority in every aspect of our lives, including in parenting. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless the word of the Lord directs us, we will labor in vain. So we ask, how will our children become like these arrows in the hands of a warrior? Parents, we must bring our children up under the authority of God's word. And they must need to be, they begin to understand the authority of God's word by coming under your authority as parents. Now, authority is not a subject that we're very comfortable with in our day and age. Authority's kind of become a, a bad word. In some ways, that's because authority has been misused to harm people. But Scripture is a steady guide that teaches us the truth about authority and how to avoid the misuse of authority. In fact, any time that authority is misused, it's because someone has gone against some scriptural truth or command, using their authority for selfish gain and not for the glory of God. But the struggle with authority is not simply a problem for the modern generation. And even though the 1960s rejection of authority has a profound impact on our cultural psyche today, our discomfort with authority didn't begin there. Our problem with authority goes farther back, even back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve resisted the authority of the Lord and disobeyed his clear command, in Adam we have all sinned and rebelled against God's authority. The reality is that we have we all have an authority problem, and we pass that down to our children. But the wonder of the gospel is that God did not leave us under judgment for our rebellion. Even when we rejected his authority and cursed him, God loved us. He sent his son to redeem us. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sinful rejection of his authority, and he leads us to repentance and faith so that we can walk in obedience to him. He loved us and he brought us back under the protection of his authority. And now we see the amazing blessing that his authority is. In him we have forgiveness and new life and holy obedience and peace and hope for eternity. But in this life, sin remains in our hearts and it remains in the hearts of our children. And it's our responsibility to teach them and to train them and to exhort them and to correct them and to encourage and to discipline them so that they can experience God's loving authority. Paul Tripp says this, to begin with, it's important to always keep in mind that as a parent, you're never just dealing with the words and actions of your children. You're also dealing with the thing that shapes, directs, and controls the behavior of your children, the heart. 
And there's no more important heart issue for every child ever born than the issue of authority. Your children must learn early that they've been born into a world of authority and they're not it. Why is this so important? Because submission to authority that is not me is unnatural to any sinner. Sinner, Sin makes us want our own way. Sin makes us want to set our own rules. Sin convinces all of us that we know better. Sin causes me to want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. Sin makes me resist being told what to do by another. Sin really does insert me into the center of my world, the one place I must never be, because it is the place for God and God alone. See, this is exactly what we saw in Psalm 127, 1 to 3, our desire for self-rule that leads to anxious toil. But the gospel sets us free. It transforms us. And so our authority is used not to promote our desires, but to point our children to the Savior who's the king over all. And with that, we're responsible to bring correction and to bring discipline. Parents, especially parents of younger children, God has given you the responsibility and the authority to bring correction to your children. You're called to adjust their behavior. And it's important that you do this from a young age so that they learn it early and they grow in their understanding. And this needs to be done in the home, day by day, in your daily routines. That's gonna take time. It it means you're gonna have to pull away from other responsibilities. But it is God's call on your life. You carry this responsibility into the community as well. When we gather as a church, our children need to be taught how to serve others, not be distracting, how to be self-controlled and submit to authority. In Promise Kingdom, they need to know how to respond to adults with respect. No adult serving in Promise Kingdom should ever be told by our children, I don't need to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. It's our responsibility to train our children in the, for these contexts. And, and training is hard. It's hard. It takes time. It takes effort. God's called you to this. Maybe consider bringing your children into the service periodically so they learn how to behave here. Even kids who have a lot of energy, even kids who are more inclined to break windows, they can be taught to sit quietly through a church service. It might mean they need more of your attention I remember how hard it was when the kids were a little, more, little and more talkative. It might mean that you're more distracted for a few years in church while you train them. But remember that as you work, the Lord is building your family. If there are times when your children are struggling, they can't make it through the service, obviously we have the lobby available to give more space and create a little less distraction. But, but remember, parents, there's a gathering going on and the lobby is a part of that. There are people out in the lobby for various reasons who are listening to God's word being preached. So as parents, we should be examples, examples of listening, avoiding side conversations, being closely attentive to our children. Even in the lobby, kids should be close to you, not roaming freely. It's not safe for them. It's not safe for others to have them running underfoot. In the lobby, your children are still your responsibility in the community, and they require your attention constant attention and training so they're not a distraction or a safety issue. And dads, as spiritual leaders in your homes, as the one who's called to bring the water of the word to your wife, make sure that you're committed to regularly sitting under God's word in the auditorium, participating in the service and worshiping. 
your family, your, your wife, your children, they need to see your example and your participation in the service with the congregation each week. Don't be drawn away from what God is specifically doing in this room while the saints are gathered. Make the necessary choices to prioritize being here. How can we correct and direct our children if we're not sitting in the service here? And discipline is also an aspect of being a parent that's critical. And we need to practice discipline from an early age. The scriptures are clear that discipline is an act of love for our children and obedience to God. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. The discipline you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? God disciplines us in love, and we should do the same for our children. In Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about how the Lord calls us to reason together with him in verse 18. But in verse 20, it says that he disciplines with the sword. Not only does he reason with us with his word, but he enacts consequences for our actions that, though they're painful to endure, teach us to, and turn us back to him. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who, gives, who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The same is reflected in our parenting. Talk alone is not sufficient to train our children. Our teaching and our reasoning must be coupled with authoritative action and consequence for disobedience. Now, if you, if you wrestle with how to understand this, I really recommend we have parenting classes that are recorded that you can go through that are wonderful. And I also highly recommend Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. <clears throat> that book is one of the most profound resources on parenting I've ever read. He will help you to understand your own heart motivations and how to tend your child's. He spends four full chapters just on how to communicate with your child, how to listen, how to learn what's going on in their minds. And he gives wonderfully practical instruction on pointing our children to identify the sin in their hearts, to enact biblical discipline, to clearly bring the gospel to your children each time you discipline them, and the importance of offering forgiveness and being reconciled when we sin against each other. It's firmly rooted in God's word, and it will be a means of grace to you. Parents, anybody with parent, kids under 12, if you don't already have a copy of Shepherding a Child's Heart, just email me this week and we'll get, we'll get you one. Now some might feel, how can I be an authority unless I'm perfect, right? I can submit to Jesus' authority because he's perfect. But God can and does use sinful and flawed people in a role of authority for good in the lives of those who are under that authority. And that allows us to relate to our children out of our own need for a Savior, even as we try to help them see their need for a Savior. Be patient. Never discipline in anger. When you do, be accountable to your spouse. Be accountable to other parents. Be honest about how you sinned and be purposeful in reconciling with your kids. But walk in faith and be the authority that God's called you to be in your children's lives. Remember, the Lord builds the house. The Lord is building your family. It's the Lord who makes our labor faithful as we faithfully build our families and our church. And this church is built by our example. And our children see our example. This is actually one of the reasons why we have all parents with children serve in Promise Kingdom once 
a month. If you have children in Promise Kingdom, you're called to serve in Promise Kingdom. That's not something that should be a hassle or a burden to us. Just consider the impact. You have just a few short years that your kids are going to be in Promise Kingdom. And while they're there, your child gets to see you both exercise your love for God in serving and your authority in the classroom. Other children in the church get to benefit from your authority and from your care for them. So let's serve in faith and be careful not to look for excuses or opportunities to skip out just because we don't prefer it, right? Our attitude should be, my kids in Promise Kingdom, how can I help? And take that responsibility to serve and shape the next generation. I'd also like to just envision us for our family services. On the months that we have fifth Sundays, we close down children's ministry and we take opportunity to bring the whole church together. And that's, that's a unique time when we're all in the service at once. We understand that it makes it more challenging, particularly for families with small children, but we need to reject any thinking that says it's not worth coming to church if I have to have kids in the service with us. Parents, get envisioned for how your children's lives will be shaped by experiencing the church gathered and worshiping together. To see the choir up on stage, to be led through communion, to observe baptisms, to hear the word read and preached. Consider the conversations that it will garner. Take time to explain to your kids what the service will be like. Encourage them to ask questions before or after the service so you can talk about it. You, you might even practice church. Now, maybe that sounds weird or nerdy, but I, I have friends who put on a live stream during the week at home, and it helped their kids to see what's going to happen in the service and also to practice sitting still, not being disruptive. When our kids were young, we generally kept them in the service with us for a few months during the winter. Maybe you can bring your children in the service more regularly. They get used to it, and they generate, they build some self-control for the family services. Listen, the church has been gathering together for 2,000 years, and children have always been a part of it. Your children are being brought into that history. They're brought into that family, and you get to play a part in helping them join it. So don't miss the crucial spiritual realities of life in the congregation because it feels hard. Teach your kids the value of it by coming despite the challenges. And so I want to close with just this last testimony from the Together blog that seeks, speaks directly to this. It's from Sarah Musum. She and her husband, John, have three children, and their oldest son, Judah, who's now 16, has autism. I greeted them when they were walking through the doors this morning. I'd encourage you to read her whole post, but listen to some of what she shares. She says, there are many things that are challenging for us to do with Judah as part of the family. But if there's one thing we're willing to make an effort to do together, it's to be with God's people. Showing up at church with Judah is, <clears throat> each week isn't easy. But we don't go to church to get our felt needs met. We come on Sunday in faith that this is where the Bible says our sanctification happens. And it's never been an option for us not to go to church, even with the challenges of bringing a kid with special needs, because it's the place God meets with his people. Didn't we experience that this morning? Aren't we experiencing that now? She says, so we just keep showing up, even when our 16-year-old has to lie down and sleep for us to be part of the service. Well, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep, right? Church is where God does his good work in our lives. 
And few things are more important than that. John and Sarah, thank you. Thanks to your whole family for your example. We're glad that you are here and we are committed to be here with you so that we can meet God each week together. And so church, let us entrust ourselves to the Lord. He's the one who builds the house. He's the one who builds the family. We can trust him through the blessing. We can trust him when things don't look the way we hope or think they should. You're called to be faithful and to trust God to help you for the results. There's a day coming when the faithful will not be put to shame. The enemy will be silenced when our children will stand beside us and testify that it is the Lord who built this house. Amen.